Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, well, good morning again. It's good to be here uh, with you. I had uh, four weeks away from the, the pulpit and a great vacation uh, with my family, uh, and so I'm appreciative of that, but I'm, I'm ready to be back and, and preaching uh, the word. Before we jump into the actual text from Nehemiah, uh, I, I pointed this out before it was coming, and, and now that it's happened, I even more so want to highlight it uh, in front of us. Over the summer, we have had five different voices preached to us. Five different people, and four of them are members from within our, our very own body. And here is just the really encouraging part. Uh, from those voices here at Redemption Hill, every one of them led you really, uh, really well. And, and that is a gift and a blessing to us all. Uh, to me, it's a gift because it just demonstrates uh, that, that Redemption's Hill is bigger than, than my talents. It, it is a group of people growing and following in Christ. And, and then it's a gift to us as an entire church also because you and I are uh, indeed stronger when, when we hear uh, many voices, many perspectives, many wirings preaching the one single gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do well and we are healthier to not be tied to only one voice, but to have multiple voices preach and lead us. I hope that you recognize how big of a deal that is, and maybe that we would just celebrate the fact that God is building something bigger than just one or two people. There are many gifts, many talents all over the place, from from preaching to to worship teams to people helping out with our kids, and I'm just thankful for that this morning. Now, we find ourselves nearing the end of the book of uh, Nehemiah. As we approach the second to last message that we are in today in this series that we've entitled The Rebuild, that, that we kind of thought was fitting after the pandemic when we are literally rebuilding much of what we do, that this book just seemed to be a smart place to be. Uh, but as we enter into this last or second to last message, I, I just want to present a question to you. If you forgot, that's kind of my thing as we start sermons. But uh, the question that I want to lay before us to think about that's worthy of our time and thought and processing this morning and even maybe during the, the week is, is quite simple. But the question is this, what do you celebrate? What do you rejoice in? What are things that you actually know that you're celebrating in your life or have been celebrating in the past? Now, uh, as far as qualifiers go, when we're asked a question, we often has the, have this notion that we answer in the way that we're supposed to answer. So the question is, is not what do you think that you should tell me you're celebrating or not what do you think you should grow in maturity so you celebrate? The question isn't what is your best friend or your mama or the person you look up to celebrate? Uh, the, the question is what do you actually celebrate in, in your life? What things mark your life with celebration? Have you slowed down to ever ask that question? And even in writing the sermon, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I have. I'm not sure I've really thought too much intentionally about the, the pattern of celebration and the things that I celebrate. So it's Olympic season or that's kind of coming to an end. So maybe your thing is to watch an athlete in an event that, that, that you really like, do something amazing and you, and you kind of cheered on the TV and you're like, well, hey, I kind of celebrated that. Or uh, maybe it's the return or, or we're kind of nearing the return of, of fall and, and football. And if it's your jam, pumpkin spice, all the things and, and brisk weather and 
and all of that stuff in your heart is celebrating when it's not 185% humidity and 100 degrees. Maybe that's what your heart is kind of celebrating is, hey, it's coming and it's around the corner. And maybe you celebrated a wedding or your anniversary or someone else's anniversary in the last little bit. And maybe you'd actually hear the question of what have you celebrated? And you go, I just don't know that I celebrate anything. I don't know that I've celebrated much at all, or maybe it's been this, man, life's just too busy right now to celebrate, right? I've got too much going on. Things are too complicated seasonally. Uh, things are just way too stressful to celebrate. Once I get into an easier form of life or easier rhythm, then I'll celebrate. But what I want us to hear and understand as we move at this text is that celebration is actually quite important. And I'll push even further, celebration is actually required by God from his people all throughout the scriptures. I wonder if that surprises you or maybe it even bothers you that, that there's a command for you to celebrate. All over the scripture, God relentlessly calls his people to practice partying. And we'll call it like holy partying, not the other kind sort of thing, right? Right? He, he demands that we practice celebration and rejoicing in expressing our joy in an outward and tangible way surrounding who he is and what he has done. We are called as sons of God who have been set free from our bondage of sin to shout to the Lord because of it, to sing out in gladness at times. I'll make some of you uncomfortable to lift up holy hands as a command in the word through your celebration and worship and thankfulness to what God has done. You may hear, hear that and think, well, that's all good and fine, uh, that, that, that God commands that type of thing, but it's just not my thing. Uh, I'll let the extroverts with the energy do it. I got kids. I don't, I don't have energy to celebrate. Maybe that's where you're at. And maybe you just hear and go, yeah, yeah, I'll let the other people do it. I'm just going to abstain. I'm going to sit back. Maybe I won't cross my arms today, but they're definitely still going to be in the pockets. I'm just not the celebrating type. I'm going to watch from a safe distance. If you fall into that camp, what I'd lovingly try and show you for your good and mine is just this. That's not your decision to make. Like opting out isn't a decision you actually get Biblically, God ordained that his people live in worship, celebration, and rejoicing. He commands, this is how you will navigate around me and what I've done. One of the things that you will do is celebrate, which then again means that worship isn't a choice. We don't come in and go like, I'll partake in that, but not this. To be obedient to God, it means that we worship whether we feel like it or not. And it also shows us this, that worship isn't a wiring issue. At times we may think, well, worship is their talent. That person's loud, so they can be the worshiper. And I'll just sit here. It's not a talent. It's not a wiring. It's not a choice. Here's one thing that I'd really love for you to take away. Celebration is an act of submission that will transform your heart and mind. That's what celebration is. Do we understand that? If it's not a choice, and even if it's not your thing, to celebrate is an act of submission. And I'll even point towards the end of this message. It's an act of submission that's rebellious in our cynical culture. My hope for today is that we'd walk away maybe with a clearer picture of what celebration looks like for us, what God calls us to, and understand that celebration centers us, changes us, and it also protects us. Do you, do you understand that? Worship protects your heart. As we look at the landscape of our personal lives and our church community, my hope is that we will rebuild a culture that celebrates better than we used to, that celebrates more together, that creates rhythms and habits and routines that build in celebration and rejoicing as a part of what we do, not as, as a thing that we kind of cross it off the box, went to MC once a month, 
did celebration once a month. That, that's not the, the goal. We don't want it to be a task or duty, but we want to celebrate because it makes us healthier and it lets us rejoice in the beauty and saturate ourselves with what Jesus has done. At a base level, before digging in further, I do want to remind us of this. A God who requires you to party, rejoice, and to celebrate is not a cruel master. Right? Just at a heart level, Right? Are you following me? The God who makes you practice celebrating. We shouldn't stand back and hear that command and go, how dare you require me to celebrate? Right? How dare you require me to slow down my pace and my rhythms and my things going on? How dare you do that to stir my soul for your kindness and your faithfulness and goodness? Hear this, all other little G gods or idols or things that ask for your worship in the world, they demand everything of you. You have to strive, you have to earn, you have to accomplish, you have to become more, you have to be more, you have to do more. But the God of the Bible says, hey, put down all of that. Put down all of the stuff in your hands, slow down your labor, slow down your pursuit, and instead of reaching out to try and earn something from me, look at what I've done in you, with you, through you, and understand that I'm still not done with that. Remember what I have done. Stop trying to work and celebrate my work instead. The God who does that is not capricious or mean. He's a good father going, I want you to see the beauty of what I've done and the beauty of what I still want to do in you. Celebration, because of this, expands our view. We often have the habit of only being able to focus on what's right in front of us. Celebration is a practice of of looking at what God did before, what he's doing now, and what he'll do eternally in us and with us. It changes our gaze. So Nehemiah 12 uh, is the chapter we're in. Obviously, celebration is kind of the the focus in for this week because that's what's happening in the text. We will not read the whole chapter, but we'll be uh, reading portions. Uh, Give me um, allotments of grace with some of these names because I am not good at them. Uh, Nehemiah 12, 27 through 30 is the first chunk. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, and with cymbals, and with harps, and with lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem, from the village of the Netaphethites, that's that's it, Uh, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Amezaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people, and the gates, and the wall. Verse 31, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate. Then we skip all the way down to 38. And the other choir, those who gave thanks, went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and the gate of Yeshna and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard, verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials with me down to 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God made them rejoice with great joy. Not with great duty, with great joy. The women, the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now we must back up and realize the magnitude of what's happened so far. We, we won't recap the entire book by any means, but years ago, God had called Nehemiah to the pursuit of rebuilding Jerusalem. This is what I'm calling you to do. Mind you, Nehemiah was actually doing quite well for himself at the time. Not all the people who formerly were in Jerusalem were, but Nehemiah was doing really well. He lived in Persia, and he actually served in a really high and distinguished position under the king, King Artaxerxes. So from exile, he worked up to be like a high distinguished person uh, who's working for the most powerful person in all of the land. This means that Nehemiah had become quite wealthy dude was rich. He had everything that a person could seem to want externally. And he had it in the most magnificent, thriving, luxurious location possible. Persia seemed to be the epicenter of all things. All the good stuff was happening there. The, 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 the technology of the, the, the time, the philosophy of the time, the riches, the money, the events, the entertainment, everything was happening there. So he had made it big and he was in the place that he was supposed to, to be. And yet God calls Nehemiah out of the world's version of success and into God's rebuilding and restoration and resurrecting of the walls of Jerusalem, the bringing back of something that appears to be dead. This means for Nehemiah to be obedient, to even open up into what happens in this book, he had to walk away from some things in his life. He literally sacrificed years of his life and tons of his own wealth. This is what we read in one of the texts before. He fed the workers and the people, tons and tons of people, out of his, out of his own pocket. His, his own animals, he was feeding them with. So it took years of his life. It took tons of his wealth. And the comfort of his sweet gig, he left Persia, where he had everything wonderful there, to come to a place that was absolutely destroyed he had to leave the, the life that he had carved out for himself. Now, I can literally hear the modern-day excuses not to go rebuild Jerusalem, can't you? Well, God, that pursuit, it doesn't really line up with my career path. All right, let's think modern day. You know, I did go to college, um, and, and that doesn't really help me on the plan that I have, and it doesn't advance things the way that I want. And it, it also doesn't really line up with my retirement plan, so I, I, don't, I don't know. Or... You know, God, God, that job or that pursuit doesn't really add to my 401k like I wanted to. I've got a financial planner right now, and, like, we have a goal to retire by this age, and we have these many things. And if I go do that, I can't really do this. I don't know if I'm going to do that. Or, God, you know, I would pursue that, but, you know, my kids, right? We're in a competitive league now, and they really like to dance and swim and do all this other stuff. So, like, I would do it, but I got to, you know, I got I to gotta do the parenting thing. Or, or what about this one? Like, yeah, God, I hear you, but I'm single, and I really would like a wife or a husband, and you're sending me to a place that just has broken down walls and no single people. So like, I don't, I don't know if I can really do that. The excuse was would all center around that language that we love to use. I just don't know if that's right for me and my family. I just don't know if it's the right thing for us to, to do. So I'm going to pass. The excuses could have been many, but Nehemiah didn't take any of them. And said he was faithful and he moves forward. And, and here's, here's where it is because the prosperity gospel could kind of go in and we could have like the Hallmark movie ending of he goes out and he was faithful and everything was perfect. It wasn't perfect at all, was it? He gets there and, and he, he goes to explore on, on his very first uh, couple days even in the city. And the rubble from the broken down walls of Jerusalem is so high that he can't even walk through it. 
He has to scale it. Like he has to climb it. He, he may have thought, well, maybe it's not too bad. It was worse than he could ever imagine. And on top of that, several neighboring leaders, very powerful men, opposed Nehemiah. They encircled him and they began to, to threaten to attack him, turn the king against him and destroy him and all the people. If that's not bad enough, several of the leaders that Nehemiah was depending to help him uh, decided that moving rocks and rebuilding a wall was beneath them, and they decided, no, 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 I'm too good for that, and they, and they walked away. And the cherry on top is the fellow Israelites, some of the, the people that he was helping, some of them began to take advantage of their fellow brothers and sisters by charging massive amounts of interest to loan them money. So they couldn't get food and they couldn't even keep their, their homes. Every single step seemed to be riddled with difficulty and trial where Nehemiah had to think, man, I should have stayed home. I should have left. I, I, I should have never done this. And yet somehow with all of the stress and all the trouble, the wall got built, the wall was resurrected, and the tasks that seemed impossible is completed. That's where we find ourselves today. Now, I want to be careful not to over-romanticize the picture that Nehemiah would have seen. Though the wall existed now, there's no homes. There's no place for anybody to live. Uh, when you look into the city, there was no impressive infrastructure there to support any type of thriving life. There was no epicenter like Persia, no luxury like Persia. It wasn't the hit place to be like Persia. There was a wall, uh, some people, and there was the house of God, and that was literally all there was. Oh, and all of their problems are still with them. Imagine walking up to Nehemiah and saying, hey, can you point me to the market? I just got here. I need to grab a couple things. He's like, yeah, yeah, we don't have one of those. Okay, that's fine. Um, can you point me to a hostel so I can at least stay for the night and I'll go, I'll go tomorrow to a neighboring city and get stuff? Yeah, negative. We don't have one of those either. Okay. Do you have any commerce, entertainment, or just basic necessities? Yeah, no, we don't have any of that. We have the people that you see and we have the house of God and, and that's it. This is the state of Jerusalem at this point. Now, I'm pointing this out because to the world, to our physical eyes, Jerusalem was nothing special at all. There was nothing to celebrate there from the world's perspective. No cause for celebration. There was no luxury. It was no thing to, to behold. It, it's not like the walls were built and all their problems went away. And yet in the face uh, of what externally looks unremarkable, at the end of the chapter, the people rejoiced so loud that their neighbors could hear them. This teaches us something that we cannot miss. Our metrics for success, our metrics for celebration are not normal to the world. If you do not understand this, you will constantly be frustrated. Our metrics for success are different. Our touchdown, our goal, our destination, our inheritance, our pursuit are not the same as the world's. They're not compatible together. If you do not realize that, then you're constantly going to be uh, disappointed in God and struggle because you'll think that because you do not have the world's version of success that God has somehow let you down or not been a good father to you. This is how we create deists, those who believe in God but believe that God created and then just walked away and he doesn't help us anymore. Believing that God has sold us out or not held up to his end of the deal. What we hope to have learned last week in, in, in the message about covenant is God always holds up his end of the deal. But if our metrics for success is the metrics of the world, we'll always look at God and go, why did you do this to me? Just as troubling though might be the opposite side of the coin. We may start celebrating the world's version of success instead of God's. 
over God's vision of faithfulness and fruitfulness and the pursuit of his kingdom. As in, if we begin to celebrate the touchdowns of the world, we'll begin celebrating things that God has nothing to do with and then putting God's name on them. Oh, thank you, God, for doing this. Go even further. We may even begin championing and rejoicing in things that God loathes and said, don't you dare do that. And we'll put his name on it because the world loves it and celebrate it. If we were to analyze over maybe the past years where we, as the church, and I mean the bigger church, the entire church needs some correction, not in that cynical way, but just honest eyes. We need to be able to account what's been good and what's been bad. The pandemic has been able to help us kind of do that in some ways. But one of the ways that maybe we've gotten a little bit off as a culture is we've started celebrating the wrong things as primary. We've we've begun to celebrate things that are completely not what we're called to celebrate. And and let me explain a little bit by by what I mean by this. Why do most people loathe the word evangelicals right now? Well, it's because the the loudest voices who ran with the torch of, of evangelicalism, they begin to celebrate a party, a political figure, and a political agenda over their savior. And the hypocrisy of that became deafening, right? They began to celebrate something over and above that God never asked them to celebrate. They basically lost their witness because of it, celebrating a goal that God never said to celebrate. On the other hand, is this, to make sure that that I kind of pick on everybody here, is many believers started celebrating the world's version of tolerance, love, and inclusion. What we need to understand is the definition of tolerance in the world and in the Bible are not the same. And definitely the definition of love in the world and in the uh, Bible are definitely not the same. Some believers started celebrating those things in the worldly way so much that they just began to ignore the commands of God in order to celebrate things. Both sides of the coin celebrating and aligning over the ideologies of men instead of the theology and the mission of God. What we have to understand here is we must celebrate and rejoice. It's a command but we must do it around who God is, what God's done, and what God promises. We do not celebrate what men want, what men promise, and what men have done. We celebrate God, his faithfulness, his goodness, his hand over and above all things. And we celebrate the wrong things. We lose our, our mission. We lose our ability to speak into the world. And, and we really lose the ability to proclaim a good Jesus when we're actually proclaiming too loud and celebrating the, the vision of men instead of the demands of God. Now, so in the text, they dedicate the wall, and they do it in a really big way. It it says, celebrate with gladness, thanksgiving, and singing with cymbals. Can I get an amen on that one from Jason, right? The drummer's like, yeah, we like that one. And with harps and with lyres. This means, hear me, they literally planned and worked towards and scheduled celebration. For some of you type A'ers, you're like, yes, planned it. For the other side of you, you're like, that's not organic. I don't know if I like that. Here's what we need to understand. True life of celebration isn't organic. You plan it, right? This is not what happened. A guy with a symbol wasn't walking through the center of the city and then he bumps into a guy with a lyre and then all of a sudden a crowd just comes and sings. That happens in musicals. It doesn't happen in real life. They planned it. They planned this moment. 
Now they took seriously the command of God, so they planned it and they started walking towards it, even purifying themselves and the gates and the walls before they start. We won't dig too far into that, but there was this process of not only will I plan to do it, but I'll prepare my mind and my heart and my body for what I'm about to go do. There's a preparation that happened, and a key here is that we just don't celebrate on accident. Do you understand that about yourself? You do not celebrate on accident most of the time. We celebrate what we value by planning times to celebrate the things that we value. Our hearts naturally lean towards cynicism, complaining, fighting, bitterness, hot takes, crushing people, all of those things. Our hearts naturally in their fallen nature, they lean towards those. Celebration is not your lean to. You work towards it. You plan it because you think it's worth it and you want to honor God and you also want to protect your own heart. Verse 31, then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. This verse is very interesting because it's loaded with other things that we can pull out of it. But in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3, if you remember earlier in the series, a guy named Tobiah, he's one of those main three leaders that were, that were uh, opposing uh, Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. He was recorded taunting the people for their efforts. This is one of his earlier attempts to really get under their skin, saying, hey, look at you guys, thinking that you're going to accomplish something great. I bet if a little fox jumped onto your little wall, they would come crumbling down. Right? If you've seen a fox, they're little animals. Right? They're not very big. He's mocking them. He's trying to say what you're doing is so worthless and so insignificant and so crummy that the smallest thing that comes is going to destroy that work and I'm going to laugh at your face because of it. He's trying to mock them, to defeat them while they're laboring for God. Now fast forward to now, Nehemiah brings up all the leaders and two huge choirs of people and he starts the celebration by standing them on the very spot that Tobiah said a fox would make the wall fall down. He's like, oh yeah? Let's start right here. All of the people lining the wall and they start the celebration in the exact point where an enemy of theirs told them that they would fail. Now, the fighter part of me is like, that's awesome, right? That's a mic drop. That's a flex. You're like, ooh, look at that. But I would say that this is more about celebrating with his brothers and sisters in Israel than just blasting Tobiah because look at what it did. When he starts the celebration on that wall, the other people forecasted would, would fall. What he's doing is as a leader, he's calling their, their memory back to that moment going, hey, do you remember how you felt that day? Do you remember how tired you were, how beaten up you were? Do you remember how worthless you felt, how small and helpless that you felt in that moment when you were already exhausted, you'd already been stretched so thin, and then he told you that you were going to fail, how you just wanted to, to walk away, and you began to think that you were crazy, you're like, maybe I should just cut bait, maybe I should just run, maybe I should just go home. Do you remember that day? Well, the God who started us out on the journey saw us all the way to the end. He carried us through. He's celebrating them going, God's work still stands in the face of his enemies. We're here standing on the reality of what God has built, no matter what other people said. I imagine that tears filled some of their eyes as they just kind of remembered how tired they were and how hard they worked and how difficult it was. But then I think joy probably filled their hearts as they said, yeah, it was horribly hard. And yet now standing here, it's all worth it. Look at what God has done against all odds. 
And the, the verse also hides another interesting detail that, that I'm assuming they, they had to have felt in the moment. Back in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5, when Nehemiah just starts to get under the, the, the pursuit of doing the work, a large, large group of nobles, of leaders in the, 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 the place just walked away. They refused to help rebuild. They were too good to stack stones. Their pride was too great. And they said, you know, I'm too good to get dirty. I'm too good to get grimy. Of course, they probably used other excuses. But essentially, they felt like the work of rebuilding was beneath them. So on this day, fast forward, Nehemiah brings up the leaders who actually did help on top of the wall. On that day, as the faithful celebrated, the hearts of the nobles who walked away, they, they couldn't ignore the reality. You're celebrating a victory they had no part in. I refuse to even help you. Knowing that their pride had robbed them from celebrating wholly in the victory of God, right? They may have been there and they may have been singing, but they knew in their heart, I didn't help at all. God called me to it and I refused out of my pride. And you cannot walk away from that moment. Shame isn't a tool we want to use, but there are moments when we've been called to something and we say, God, no, I won't do that. That later we'll stare that in the face and go, man, I should have listened. And for some of those leaders there, there's no doubt they would, have, they, they would have seen that. God has been faithful the whole time, and I wouldn't even pick up a rock. Now imagine the scene. The celebration starts on top of the wall, and it says two massive choirs are formed. One choir heads south, giving thanks around the city, right? So they're all gathering on the wall. One goes south and begins to go place to place to place, giving thanks and singing around the city. While the other choir, uh, they, they go north around the broad wall and the tower of ovens and the fish gate and all of that. And every place in between. And then the two groups that had gone different directions, they merge back together at the very house of God. This is had to be a powerful experience for them. What I love for this for your heart and mine is it teaches us that, that celebration is not limited to the house of God alone. For us, it's the church. Hear me, this is not the only place you're meant to celebrate. Instead, celebration touched every place that they had worked and they had gone. Through all of those markers and those gates, it was their way of saying, we're going to celebrate what you've done in every place of our life that we have been. There's been this tragic invasion that all of us have kind of dealt with where where the the world in our minds have have been segregated into the realms of the secular and the sacred. This is the holy place and this is the the, the regular place. This is where I do life and, and this is where I do faith as if they are separate territories when the Bible never supports that. In every area that God showed his faithfulness, they stopped there and they sang, you've been faithful here and you've been faithful here, and you've been faithful here. And all of that culminates back, showing that God had been faithful in the streets and the sanctuary and celebrating God in the streets and the sanctuary. Now, it's, it's really significant that they didn't separate those areas, but also I think it's very significant that celebration, it isn't limited to the house of God, but it culminates there. The, the crescendo is there, showing us that church is not a place where you go to get your needs met alone. We have to destroy that American mentality that the church is where you come to get fed, to get your need met, your needs met, to get your kids taken care of, to get entertained, to get wowed, to, for all of these things. That's not what the church is meant to be. The house of God is the epicenter of the celebration of who God is, what he's done, and what he promises. That's what the house of God is. This has to inform 
what we do when we gather. Doesn't it? We focus our eyes on God in the moments through our week. All of our efforts, all of our work lead to the party where we see God more fully with our brothers and sisters together. How amazing would it be if church was really viewed this way and if we viewed our weeks in this way, that we celebrated what God has already done in our homes, in our cars, if we just prayed in different moments. God, thank you for your goodness in that area. And, and then in our jobs and in our neighborhood, thank you for the people that you've placed around me, even, the, the, even the, the, the annoying people in the corner. Thank you for them even. And we thank God in our missional community, uh, so much so that Sunday became the grand finale of a week that had just been full of celebration and thanksgiving. I'm not trying to sell you an over-idealistic, impossible notion because I have an inner cynic inside that's like, yeah, 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 that's not real for my life. But seriously, what if we actually did practice celebrating God's faithfulness more during the week? It doesn't mean every moment is all celebration, but what if we celebrated more during the week? How much would that change the, the feel and, and the function and the vision for what Sunday is actually meant to be? As we walk with hearts that are just more fuller of Christ and what he has done. And then we enter into this place, not tired, exhausted, and like, I better, they better give me something great because my week's been terrible. But we walk in instead going, you have been really good. I'm going to worship you because of it. The lives that we lead Monday through Saturday change our experience on Sunday. I hope that you've learned that. You cannot expect to never open your word, never pray, never celebrate Monday through Saturday and then have this like Maranatha, amazing, glory-filled experience every Sunday. The culmination of your week, your prayer, your your reading, your celebration during the week culminates here. Man, I hope that we learn that. Dry seasons, we often fight those off by beginning to celebrate, read, and, and pray in the week so that we can see more fully what God has done Sunday for us. And I hope that you're with me. The text says that the celebration train moved from the city to the house of God. And when it arrived, the people rejoiced with everything they had in them. Notice the detail. They did not rejoice because they had to. They didn't rejoice out of a feeling of obligation or, or, or duty. They didn't rejoice because they were afraid that Nehemiah was going to like hammer them if they didn't. They rejoiced because God made them rejoice with great joy. What does that mean? As they walked through the areas of the city after starting on the wall, they remembered each impossible day that God had saw them through as they remembered uh, what an impossible task it was to, to build things back, and as they remembered how God showed them favor by protecting them when, when really large groups were surrounding the, the city and they're working on the wall with a sword in one hand and kind of a, a trowel in the other hand, they remembered those days and they remembered the covenant of God's love for them, how he didn't give up on them. Even when they were unfaithful to God, God never was unfaithful to them. He stayed around. He protected them. He loved them. He cared for them, and the only thing that they could do after remembering from place to place to place all the ways that God had saw them through the impossible is it culminated in rejoicing and joy. You've done all of these things. What else can I do but thank you? It was undeniable that God had been at work in that place and in those people. They just took the time to see what God had done. Friends, that's what we have to begin to do is walk through our life and stop looking at everything else and and see what, what God has done for us, how kind he has been. As we look through the text, I love that it shows that it wasn't just the men celebrating. 
This was a holistic celebrating for all the people that belonged to God in those city walls. The men celebrated with the women and with the children. What a vision that must have been. All God's people together, not forced, just actually thankful and overjoyed that God's hand had been over them even in really hard days. Celebrating, getting after in thanksgiving and celebration so loudly that their neighbors took notice. Friends, for those of you with kids, to have a pattern where you're celebrating what God has done so fully that you are with your kids in the house of God and you see them celebrating a God that's good, man, what a vision that would be. Right? Not, not just there, but kids actually going, my, my dad's been telling me about how good my father has been, how, how good God has been, and, and now I want a part of it too. Don't send me downstairs. I want to celebrate and sing. What a vision that would be. Now, how does this picture of celebration fit into the scope of our lives and our church now, right? DeMarcus said it last week. We're not building a, a wall around my house and you're all living in like a cult. We're not doing that. How, how do we celebrate, though, now? That might be a question that surfaced in your mind that the gateway, the doorway of celebration is just the beginning of the gospel. The same way that God saw to it that a pile of ruins became a city, you have to understand that's the same thing he's been up to in your heart all this time. He's been slowly putting the broken pieces back together, the rebellious pieces back together. You were busted up beyond repair and God came in and he made whole and he resurrected what was once dead and what was once rubble through our Lord Jesus, our Savior. This is the doorway of celebration and gratitude. Christ has rebuilt his sons and daughters. He did that work on our behalf. That is a cause for rejoicing. In other words, Christ has done the impossible. You did not lift a hand in it. You didn't put a stone in place. You didn't go 90, and, or, or Jesus didn't go 90, and you went 10. He did all of the work. He bought you and brought you a gift that you could never buy and you could ever earn. And he says, here, this is yours. Let my love wash over you, and I'll give you a new name. You're now holy and righteous. Because of what I've done? No, because of what I've done. This is the doorway of celebration. If your faith is in Christ, let that begin to just marinate on your heart. He's been good to you. Whether you've looked at or thought of your reality of your salvation over the last week or, or months or a couple months, he has done so much to show you that he's loved you. And even in the moments when you still rebel against him, he still says, hey, hey, you're still mine. This is the beginning And from there, after the doorway of understanding the gospel and what God has done for us, then we begin to look at, okay, and then what has he been up to since then? And what has he promised to still do after this? For us as a church, and I kind of just struggled a little bit in the office of like what all to say, because we don't ever want to like, we want to be able to celebrate without bragging in a weird way. And maybe this is the, the way to do it, because some of the things that I'll, that I'll say, we've got a ton of people gone this week. But here's the reality as a church. Beyond just saving us as individuals, if our faith is in Christ, that's not universal for everyone who walks in. It's for the people who have put their faith in Jesus. We're getting towards, hopefully, the tail end of a pandemic, and we're, we're still here. I don't know if you understand how big of a deal that is right now. Like how many churches right now are in utter chaos? 
divided by conflict over any, anything you can imagine, over race, over CRT, over vaccinated or unvaccinated, and whether you like Biden or whether you are Trump or what do you like about the election or all of these things and sex and sexuality, churches everywhere are divided by conflict. I know staff people in Columbia through the stress of what's going on literally just walk out of their church and go, I didn't sign up for this, I'm out. Churches divided by conflict, staff walking out, massive percentages of their congregation saying, I don't want anything to do with the church anymore. And, and yet somehow, definitely not by my great planning, not by, by our brilliance either, God has actually grown us and deepened our community. To understand just the reality of where we are and where we've come, before the pandemic came for us, we were on a trickle the wrong way. We were losing people. His faithfulness has brought several new families in and several singles in. What else has he done? We radically changed our missional community structure. The elders had met and talked. and The only way that we saw a path towards health is if we reverse course. So we went from five missional communities to three. From the outside, that signals death. Oh, they just haven't admitted that they're going to close yet. And yet our missional communities are thriving in a deeper way than they ever have before. God's done that. We've had new families come in saying, I've been praying for something like this. And us as leaders are like, are we crazy? Because everyone's not acting like they want a part of this. And then other people go, no, we've been praying for this for a long time. Unexplainably, God's even added to our numbers through this. Right? We're not bragging over what we've done because numbers aren't all, but he's kept us together. In the realm of church conflict, we've... Everyone has their issues, but we're, we're still all right. And he's actually added to our vision, our desire for depth, and our desire for evangelism. After church today, I meet with a couple uh, people here just to talk about, because so many people have asked for help with evangelism, what the next structure is going to be to help us with evangelism. All of that has happened outside of what we've done. We've just prayed, and God has been faithful. See, this is how you really begin to to cultivate a culture of celebration is you just begin to slow down to think, God, where have you been good? Where have you brought us victories? Where have you done the unimaginable? Now, this is even why, if, if you've been paying attention, why we're going to have a massive celebration for our 10-year uh, party in October. It's all because of this. Why? Because we're taking seriously the call of God to celebrate his faithfulness in us and through us. Do you know how many times we could have blown this thing up? And yet God has been good. Right? So we're going to celebrate his hand, his blessing, his love. And we want to remember like, what God has brought us through. Part of the thing that we're going to start rolling out before that celebration comes is just asking for stories of grace. Where have you seen God's hand? We don't want to manipulate or cause you to make up stuff to have a good story, but we want to stir each other to celebrate the many ways in your heart and soul and in our being that God has done things. Here's my encouragement, though. That's not till October. Chances are you're all going to forget this sermon long before that. We can begin to celebrate before that party comes. See, we can create a culture of celebration in the here and now, before we ever get to that spot, by sharing 
really what is God is doing in us. We, we spent, I think, a, a week and a half ago in our missional community, we led into a sermon-based message where we then to just talk about where our hearts are worshiping or where God has been good and where we've been thankful for. And it just turned as we saw just uh, several different people say things. And, and what kind of happened is it stirred us for the beauty of God. God's at work. His hand is here. Look at what he's done. Other ways to begin creating a, a culture uh, of celebration is begin to encourage others around. Here's the reality. We're so hard on ourselves. You generally have the hardest time seeing what God's doing in you. So if you see God working in, a, in another brother or sister, begin to encourage them. Man, I see God's hand there. That's so good. That's so beautiful to, to begin to encourage them to see and celebrate, maybe even in areas that they wouldn't. See, we can create these rhythms in our heart by regularly acknowledging what God has done in us, what you see God doing in others, and the way that he has been faithful. So he stirs our hearts, and we can understand that he hasn't left us alone. All of that points to the reality of, look what God's been doing all of this time. Look at what he's still doing. Let's pray towards what he wants to do, and let's remember what he promised to finish this out at. What would it look like to invest in celebration? Just tangible ways for your life and mine. Invite some people over for dinner. And after good food, and if you're so inclined, good drink, get your glass out, tap and be like, hey guys, can we just slow down? Like, hey, I'm tired of talking about the Cardinals or MU football coming. Can we just, what's something you're thankful for that God's done? Just around good food and, and begin to brag at God's goodness. This is an easy way to facilitate a culture of celebration is just to slow down with other people around you and go, there's a million other things we could do. But right now, let's do this. Let's mention where God has brought us, what he has done. Where we facilitate hearts that are thankful. Here's what I hope that we can begin to fully understand. We live in a world bent on negativity, hostility, hot takes, fighting, lashing out, loathing people. Let's be rebellious against that. A, a culture, uh, instead of leaning into hostility and cynicism, right? Everyone's got a hot take over what should happen over this and this and this. Instead of playing that game, what if we rebelled against that game? You're going to know, I'm going to say what I'm thankful for instead. Because here's how conversations go. Hey, what are you mad about? I'm not, I'm not playing. Here's what I'm thankful for, though. What if we begin to do that, rebelling against the culture? Instead of tearing down things, we lift things up and speak of where Jesus has been, celebrating our God who's done good things. Not celebrating, again, ourselves. Not celebrating our ideologies. Not celebrating our pet projects. Celebrating God. This is what he's done. This is what I'm dreaming about and praying that he'll still do. And this is what he's going to finish off as. If you would listen and obey towards that, even just wondering, okay, even before that whole dinner thing of these celebrations, what else can we start even in this moment? We'll close with three other songs and just begin to pray. Prayers of thanksgiving. Right? Just as you're singing, take a moment. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your church family. Thank you for people to walk with. Thank you for your patience because I'm so stinking hard-headed. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for my family. Like, all of these things, just begin to, to just in prayer, tell God what you're thankful for, stretching yourself to name the ways that he has been good. Right, God, you've been so kind. Thank you. 
a transformed people celebrating the transformation they have been given. This is what celebration looks like. This is our call, and it protects our hearts in a world that's just so angry. Band, you guys can come back up. Here's my other thing, too. If you've been with us for a short time or a long, and you're just not really sure if you have that Savior that's given you that gift. You're, you're not sure that there's been the Savior that's paid the full weight of your balance of sin, or maybe you just haven't fully trusted him. Here, here's my call for you. God has sent Jesus to do everything that you couldn't, and you have to jump through zero ho- hoops in order to, to get that. So maybe you just even pray today, man, I, I don't think I've been thankful for much, but I don't even think I've really actually trusted you. Christ, be my Savior for my sin. Teach me. That's my hope is that you would do that today if you haven't. And then begin to celebrate today. Man, he really is good. He really has been kind. He really has been patient. This isn't just the call for all those who are already saved. It's the call for those who are not yet either. Come and trust the Lord. You don't have to wait anymore. We'll take communion today in the last three songs, the way we've been doing communion during this time. Uh, the, The cups are in the entryway. You do not have to be a member to take. All we ask is that your faith be in Jesus. So at any time during worship, you can take. But 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 guides that process. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you're stirring your own mind to think of where to be, uh, where to be thankful, celebrate that his body has been given for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I pray that during worship, as you take, you remember that his body has been broken for you and his blood has been shed for you, meaning there's no gap left. He has paid the full weight of your sin already, and you can worship here with clean hands that God has done more than you could ever do pray that your heart would just be built up in that. He loves you. He cares for you. And he showed it on the cross. Will you stand with me as we get into worship today? God, I pray that you help us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you come draw near. Our hearts are so prone to get hardened. We soften the areas where we're overly cynical. I pray that you come in and deal with anger or bitterness or all the things that may stand in the way of celebrating. Holy Spirit, would you deal with those? Show us Jesus more fully, more clearly, our kind Savior who draws near to us even in the middle of our struggling and the ways that we fall short. Holy Spirit, show us that Christ. And I pray that you begin to show us the reality of what God has done. We are so easily forgetful that grace upon grace upon grace has been given to us. Let us see a clearer picture of that today. Will you create in us hearts of thanksgiving, hearts of celebration, hearts that are no longer cynical, but they're thankful for the beauty of what you've done. I pray that that would happen. God, be glorified in our time today. May we make much of you. May our songs be all about your goodness and nothing about what we've done. We love you. We're so thankful for your kindness to us. Be with us, Lord. Amen.